time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. I am the traveling Mr. Roseboro. Your servant in Christ. Did I just call myself Mr. Roseboro? Oh, man. You spend almost a week on the road, and you start to lose your mind. <laughs> Mr. Roseboro. Man. Well, today's uh, edition of Fighting for the Faith will be a pretty short program. And the reason for that is is that uh, with my travel schedule and my conference schedule over at the Reveal Now conference, physically making an entire uh, program is just literally out of the question right now. So today's edition of Fighting for the Faith is going to be another one of my lectures, and it's a follow-up lecture uh, to the the lecture I did on the bondage of the will. I did two lectures on the bondage of the will and posted those for you. They were Sunday school lessons that I taught at Faith, uh, Faith Lutheran Church in Capistrano Beach. Uh, the, the week after I finished the bondage of the will, I did a follow-up lesson on the means of grace. It's an important topic. You do not really understand how it is that God makes Christians until you uh, understand the doctrine of the means of grace. And so today, for Fighting for the Faith, I'm going to play that lesson on the means of grace for you, uh, for your listening pleasure. Before we get started, just a quick update. Have, I've been at the Reveal Now conference. Uh, we just finished day one, and uh, my head is spinning. Literally, there's... Uh, <clears throat> It's a mixed bag of uh, of feelings and things to report. There's some good news and there's some there's some bad news as well. I I just I I need to process it before I can properly talk about it. I mean I'm excited to say that uh, Bill Hybels has repudiated many of the uh, of the methods that he pioneered in the seeker sensitive movement because based on the data that they've done, he's that their methods. Uh, didn't work in making disciples, and uh, in many uh, instances drove away uh, very important people, and those would be your mature Christians. And on the other hand, um, they their solution to the problem has some issues and has some problems, and hopefully there'll be some dialogue and discussion regarding this, but uh, at the moment they're pretty dead set on on pursuing spiritual formation and spiritual disciplines, um, both of which are just fraught with error and danger from my point of view, And um, but I'm going to have to let them speak for themselves and define what they mean by these terms. I am excited to hear that uh, th- that Willow Creek is strongly promoting now expository Bible teaching. Probably one of the most frustrating uh, sessions to sit through yesterday um, was the um, was the session on expository Bible preaching, and it wasn't difficult to sit through because I disagreed with it. I di- I agreed that uh, pastors should be preaching the Bible in a clear and expository way. What was mind-boggling was that I was sitting in an auditorium with literally thousands of pastors and church workers from across the country and the world, and these are people that I'm assuming uh, many of them have seminary degrees and many of them uh, have, have education from Bible college, and yet they needed to be reminded or retaught, maybe is the right word, in the strongest words possible, 
that God's word is what transforms somebody's life and that they need to be preaching it clearly, preaching it in context. They need to, you know, engage people in it. I mean, I was sitting there going, yeah, I agree. And wow, it's how far off the rails have things gotten when, you know, you have to sell a, a group of pastors on the idea that uh, preaching the Bible is an important thing. But the sad thing is, as Greg Hawkins from Willow Creek revealed as part of the Reveal Conference, uh, there's too much revealing going on, um, that uh, pastor, uh, churches across the country are doing a terrible job of preaching God's Word, and that's what their data shows. Anyway, we'll get into more of that as I have time. Um, today I fly out of Chicago late and get into uh, get into the Southern California area pretty late in the evening, and uh, we'll be trying to process everything that I've heard and, and, and seen over the past couple of days. And then, of course, we've got to do some review of uh, my Doug Paget interview. Um, if you've listened to it, you, uh, you have opinions, and I've been getting them from you guys. You've been emailing me. Listen to Doug Paget. Listen to his interview. Notice I wasn't trying to debate him. I asked him some tough questions and wanted him to flesh out some of his ideas. And uh, he's supposedly preaching and teaching a, a Christianity that, that is worth believing. Um, after you heard his version of Christianity, is that the one that's revealed in Scripture? I work from the basic premise that the only Christianity that's worth believing is the one that's true. And the one that's true is found in the Scriptures. Is that what we heard from Doug Paget? Would love to get your feedback. So without any further ado, I'm going to go ahead and uh, hand over the program to myself. <laughs> I'll be playing a lecture for you guys. And uh, there will be actually no further breaks here in the uh, in the program because I don't even think we're going to make it quite a full hour. I apologize for the brevity of the show. But that's the fun thing about fighting for the faith is that we go as fast or as slow. We take as long as we need on any given day. And uh, I'd like to thank you for tuning in. If you'd like to email me any comments, do so. Talk back at fightingforthefaith.com. And without any further ado, here is a lecture that I presented on the means of grace, a very important topic in understanding how we overcome the bondage of the will. Now, we've been going through the book of Colossians. And if you remember last week, I said, come and ask questions of me after class if you have questions. And uh, Brother David Atkinson came and asked me a question last week. And almost threw down a gauntlet and, and challenged me to uh, teach the flip side of what I taught last week. And so this is going to be Bunny Trail Sunday. Uh, you know, it's not a liturgical day. I think you know, this is one that we might have to come to every now and then. And um, you'll see what I'm talking about here. We're, we're going to spend not that much time in Colossians and really talk about the implications of what we talked about last week regarding the bondage of the will. So Colossians, uh, if you remember... Um, we had been really taking a look at verse 1, and that is, is that Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. And so we took this opportunity to take a look at the doctrine regarding the bondage of the will, original sin, um, whether or not you have free will and things like that. We looked at the biblical view versus Pelagianism and semi-Pelagianism, and semi-Pelagianism is the, uh, the majority view of American evangelicals. It's the whole underpinning theologically of decision theology. You make a decision, 
you know, in your weakened, sinful state, and then God will complete the process. You make one step, God will make the rest. Okay? Um, so what we looked at is um, what the Augsburg Confession talks about regarding original sin and the bondage of the will. By way of review, it is taught among us that since the fall of Adam, all human beings who are born in the natural way are conceived and born in sin. This means that from birth they are full of evil, lust, and an inclination and cannot by nature possess true fear of God and true faith in God. To say that you can truly love God or truly have faith in Him of your own is, as our uh, theologians would argue, that's not uh, original sin, that's original righteousness. Moreover, the same innate disease and original sin is truly sin and condemns to God's eternal wrath all who are not born anew through baptism of the Holy Spirit. So we've been talking about the bondage of the will and that man cannot make a first step toward God because we are dead in our sin and incapable of mustering true faith and love for God. Can't do it. Ergo, really fun little Latin word, God elects, God draws, God gives saving faith as a gift, 100% God's work. 0% yours. Okay? So, now this is where Brother Atkinson's issue comes How does this doctrine impact our evangelism? Now, being a Lutheran and having taught in a Baptist church for a few years, forgive me, um, it's easy for me to take a look from the outside, and I've been in and out of Lutheran churches, and my observation would be this, is that we Lutherans are not exactly um, known for our evangelism. They want to take issue with that? Yes, we have babies. This <laughs> so we, we grow the church through pregnancies. Okay. Now the question is, is that is, does this idea of the bondage of the will, is this getting in the way of our evangelism? I'm going to make this contention, that our doctrine regarding the bondage of the will should motivate us all the more to go out into the mission field and go and share the gospel of Christ. Because we understand from what Scripture says that our neighbors who are unsaved, what their fate is before God. And, you know, the, the Calvinists have this idea about the elect and, you know, and this, this idea that they're going to be saved no matter what, so why try? We don't quite have the same view of the elect that they do. And, and it's like when we go out and preach, it's like the elect don't have a tattoo that we look for. Or, you know, they don't have one of those RFID things with under the skin. If we just wave a wand over and we can decide, oh, that person's the elect and I'll talk to them. Instead, we kind of have the sloppy idea that we just got to go scatter seeds and let God do the thing. And so I want to talk about the flip side of this and talk about, yes, there's the bondage of the will, but we also have to understand how does faith come? What is it that God uses to create faith? Ex nihilo, if you would. I think some of you know that when I first went to Concordia University, it was Christ College at the time. They changed the name to Concordia University. I'm still bitter about it, so I call it Conu. But <laughs> um, but when I first got there, I was a Nazarene who was working at Focus on the Family and went there because Dr. Walter Martin said it would be a good place to go and study apologetics because Dr. Rosenblatt, one of the premier apologists in the world, was teaching there. And I get into his class, and I thought, this man is not saved. 
swear. <laughs> yeah. I, he was a real thorn for me. Why? Because I looked at him and said, he's not even trying to be holy. He's not trying. He doesn't hold his mouth. He smokes. He did at the time. You know, and, and, and this guy keeps talking about Christ. He never talks about the things I need to do to please God. He always talks about how Jesus pleased God for me. Christ, 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 Christ. Jesus, 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 Jesus. Heard this already. That's like the baby stuff. We've got to get on to the hard stuff. That's what I thought. I was wrong. I was wrong. And so with understand this, is that as long as somebody is believing that they are... They've, there's something they've got to do to save themselves, we must treat them as an unbeliever and kindly and forcefully share the gospel message with them about Christ. Because if they're depending upon their own works righteousness to get them into heaven, they're not going to make it. Okay? Think of it this way. All right? We're, one of the verses we'll get to, it talks about the fact that, we, that Christ paid our debt for us. All right? And if you really want to know how big our debt is, Imagine having you know, a mortgage of about $2 billion and you've got to make payments on it daily with interest and you work at McDonald's. Okay? You're never going to be able to make the beginning payment. The phone's ringing off the hook. Your creditor wants his money now. And the works righteousness people think that, well, if I'm working at McDonald's and I'm making the small payments as best as I can, I have good intentions that it's going to be okay, they're wrong. It's not okay. There's going to be a day where they've got to pay up the whole thing. And not one bit of their righteousness even comes close to paying off the debt. Whereas on the cross, Jesus takes our debt and He nails it to the cross with a big red stamp on it, paid in full. Your creditor cannot come after you anymore. That's the picture of the Gospel. And so, when somebody is still trying to make payments for their salvation, they're doomed. We have to believe that. And so, share Christ and be that obnoxious Rosenblatt type. Pieper says this, there's only two religions in the whole world. Two! One religion has a whole bunch of different forms. And it's this idea that you've got to be moral and, and earn your way into heaven and placate the God by your good works. Whether that be Allah, the God of the Mormons, the God of the Jehovah's Witnesses, it's all moralism. It's the same religion. It just takes on different spins. Or the religion of Rome. Okay. Then there's another religion. It's a humble one. Small. Obscure. Despised full of sinners who know that there's nothing they can do to placate God by their own righteousness, who basically say, I throw myself at your mercy, Christ. Please have mercy on me, a sinner. And all the trust and all the work is done by Christ, not us. That's the second religion. There's only two. I spent a lot of time listening to sermons from evangelicals. And um, even though I came out of that, I, I have a real heart for them and I want to know what, what, what they're being taught and fed. And I guarantee you, 99% of these sermons, there's no point in Jesus being even part of it at all. Because it's follow this biblical principle and do this and have this thing happen in your life. You don't need Jesus for that at all. If the sermon can make sense without Jesus in it, it isn't a Christian sermon. 
Who is it that sanctifies us according to Scripture? Christ. So what happens is, is that that's the main error of evangelicalism is, is that Christ is not the one who sanctifies. Somehow that's become our job. And as a result of it, you get onto a works righteousness wheel. And even though you say, yes, I trust in Christ that He's forgiven me, the focus of how you work out your salvation is all based on me. Okay, so what happens is, is that that's one of the reasons why there's this bad Christianity, where the latest bad that comes through the church, you know, the prayer of Jabez, the purpose-driven life, um, you know, being an on-fire Christian, all of these things are designed to help stir you up with the law so that you will, you will be a sincere Christian and live out your life. It kind of goes something like this. If you've heard these types of sermons, um, you know, are you a Sunday-only Christian? You come to church and you're good on Sundays, but then Monday comes and you go right back to being a sinner? You ever hear that? That's a common theme in evangelicalism. Notice the problem there? i got news for you. I'm a sinner on Sunday too. Okay? So the emphasis is on me and what I'm doing and how I'm progressing in my sanctification rather than on the fact that Christ has done it all for me. I live under the cross and even the feeble works that I do, feeble, okay, are still wicked because now I'm only doing the things that Christ has asked me to do. You can't go above and beyond. Righteousness could be attained by the law then Christ died for nothing. And then what's the flip side of that too? Continuing in, that, in, that, in, in Galatians, Paul says, you who have started in the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal through the flesh? You can't. This morning in the sermon, I didn't hear a sermon okaying or excusing sin. I heard a sermon admonishing us in light of Christ's mercy to be like Christ. Cussing is not right. Adultery is not right. Swearing is not right. Using witchcraft, lying or deceiving in God's name is not right. Not loving God with all of your heart is not right. In fact, we maintain that we are required to be perfect. Understanding this, in Christ, we are, we are made pleasing before God. And that should actually motivate us to evangelism because we don't have to worry now about pleasing God. Christ has done that for us. We're not on the rat wheel, and daily we live under the cross. We live in God's mercy. Whenever we talk about sanctification, I always like to go back to that passage in Romans, when Romans switches from talking about what Christ has done for us to talking about how this is lived out in our lives. The phrase is, in light of God's mercy. It's not offer yourselves as living sacrifices. That's, that's me doing the work. In light of God's mercy, I do these things. Because I love Christ because He's forgiven me. I'm His servant, bought with a price. I don't have freedom to go out and sin. Paul says in Romans 6, you know, should we sin that grace may abound? By no means. Because we were baptized into Christ. So if you take Christ's mercy and turn it into a license for sin or an excuse for sin, you're kind of absolving yourself in an incorrect way, and in turning the righteousness of Christ into a license. But every Sunday we come here and we start with an invocation in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and then immediately go into confession of sins. These are not okay, but we take them to Christ, who has paid in full. 
And Luther, I, I forget the exact passage, he talks about our, um, about our good works. Even our good works are filled with mortal sins. Filled, you know. I, I can't think of a single good work that I've done that hasn't been at, in some part or mostly motivated by my own selfishness and vanity. I can't think of one. Third use of the law. You all know what we're talking about when we talk about third use of the law. First use of the law is like the civic righteousness. God gives us the law so that we don't beat up on ourselves and anarchy doesn't reign. Okay. Second use of the law is that God convicts us of our sin and shows us how we don't live up to His standard. That's the primary use of the law, by the way. That's the, the, the primary one in Scripture. And then the third use of the law is this idea is that the law shows us what it means to do a good work. But see, when you get into that and you lose sight of the primary use of it, if you think that you're making progress in these things and start to begin to trust in your own ability to make progress in you know, overcoming particular sins, then you're, you're, you've spun out of control. Whereas you, if you think things are right, but they're not. And so you have to fall back onto the second use constantly. And that's what we're doing when we come and we confess our sins. That's what pastor is doing when he's up in the pulpit and he's preaching Christ's word and the law in such a way that you're sitting there squirming in your seat knowing, oh, dude, I'm in so much trouble before God because of what I did. And that's what it's supposed to do. Okay, So I, we as Lutherans need to keep focusing back on the second use. And what happens is, is that the evangelicals, they take the third use and they exclude the second. Okay, that and it has to do with how the emphasis of their teaching. Okay, now let's see if we can get through some things here before I run out of time. Okay, when we talk about evangelism, I want to talk about something that's really important. By what means does God impart faith? When we looked at the bondage of the will, this is really the bad news portion of it, and it's like preaching in the cemetery. So we talk about the means of grace. This is the word and the sacraments. Okay, real simple. All right. And we need to take a look at what, what, um, what is taught regarding this. In our confessions, in the form of Concord, it says this, Moreover, the, de- the declaration, John 6.44, that no one can come to Christ except the Father draw him. Remember the Greek word there, helkuo. Emphasis on that verb is, is that there's the, the thing being drawn has no ability to move of its own or won't. Okay? Father draws him is right and true. However, the Father will not do this without means, but has ordained for this purpose His Word and His sacraments as ordinary means and instruments, and it is the will neither of the Father nor the Son that a man should not hear or should despise the preaching of His Word and wait for the drawing of the Father without the Word and sacraments. Alright, for the Father draws indeed by the power of His Holy Ghost, however, according to His usual order, the order decreed and instituted by himself by the hearing of his holy divine word as with a net by which the elect are plucked from the jaws of the devil. Every poor sinner should therefore repair thereto to holy preaching, hear it attentively and not doubt the drawing of the Father for the Holy Ghost will be with his word and with his power and work by it that that is the drawing of the Father. Okay, Understand something. We don't believe that if somebody goes up onto a mountain and prays while the sun is coming up that God is going to speak to them. Okay? And that God is going to impart faith to them. We believe, teach and confess that God works through means. Okay? 
talked about how cool, so I'm going to zip through this slide real quick. So what are we talking about here? What exactly is a means of grace? Okay, It's the means by which God has promised in His Word to draw a sinner in part and quicken faith. It's the way He's promised to do it. One of the issues with the seeker-sensitive movement is that they think that they can manipulate somebody into making a decision by the right moods or setting the right atmosphere or creating the right circumstances. It's, it's, it's an entertainment type of thing. And so they think that they can generate decisions based upon how they've set, they've set the whole thing up. Okay, We actually deny that's possible. God only works through His Word and sacrament. That's what He's promised to do. And so when we talk about this, we're talking about the Gospel. Particularly when we talk about the Word, our, our dogmaticians will talk about the fact it's not Moses that brings us to Christ. It's the proclamation of the Gospel. Okay? So specifically we're talking about the Gospel and it's either heard or read. We ha- nobody has any issue with somebody saying, you know, my girlfriend gave me a Bible. She was a Christian. She gave me a Bible and I decided I would go ahead and read it. I started reading the thing and next thing you know, I started believing it. Now I trust in Christ and I'm a Christian. We'd say, yep, that's how it happens, right? Or somebody says they went to church and they heard the pastor preaching and they real and something woke up in them and they knew that it was true and now they're a Christian. We'd say, yep, that's how it happens, right? Okay. No one has a problem with this idea that faith comes through the preaching or the reading of the Word. Where it gets really messy, though, is this idea of the sacraments. The, Greek, uh, the, the Latin ver, uh, word here that we use is uh, verbum visibale, the visible word. Okay? This is an offense. Okay? This is an offense. It's this idea that not only does Christ use His Word, but He uses sacraments. Red, wine, and water. This is really offensive stuff. And as an evangelical, I had a hard time coming to grips with this. Really tough time. Okay? The fact is, is that Jesus Christ used both His Word and the visible Word. So when we think of sacraments, think of it as visible Word. This morning, we had a gentleman being baptized. There's a little bit of the visible Word still right here. Okay? It's the taking of earthly elements and combining them with God's Word in such a way that by faith we know that this has got to be true because God has promised it to be, but we can't see it. Okay, It's a visible Word. And I want to give you an example. Uh, this is one of my absolute favorite passages of Scripture. All right? This is an example of the visible Word in action from John chapter 9. And as He, Jesus, passed by, He saw a man blind from birth And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And having said these things, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Makes mud. Okay? In this story, the mud is the visible word. Why didn't Jesus just go, 
You're healed. He did that with other people, right? Talitha Kum, little girl, wake up. She got up, right? Jesus here is using visible work. And he anointed the man's eyes with the mud, and we all go, ooh, and said to him, go and wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So get this, get this idea here. We've got a man who's born blind, lived his whole life blind. Jesus basically comes to him, honks a loogie in the sand, takes it up and puts it on his eyes and tells him to go wash. Up to this point, this man has never seen Jesus, by the way, because Jesus sends him away. Okay? Then he anointed the man's eyes with him, go wash. Okay, so he went and washed and came back seeing. Now, the neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, is he? Others said, no, but it looks like him. And he kept on saying, I'm the man. So they said to them, well, then how were your eyes opened? He said, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes. Again, I come back to the question, why did Jesus make mud? Why didn't he just say, you're healed? Right? Jesus here is using a visible word. Okay? And he said to me, go to Siloam and wash. And so I went and washed and received my sight. And they said to him, well, where is he? And he said, well, I don't know. And they brought to the Pharisees the man who had been formerly been blind. And now it was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud. Again, notice the emphasis, made the mud. He made it on a Sabbath. Wait a second, you're not allowed to honk a loogie and make mud on the Sabbath. He opened his eyes. All right. Continue. So the Pharisees again asked him, how he received his sight. And he said to them, He put mud on my eyes. See that? The visible word working here. And I washed and I see. By the way, this is not a common way to restore sight to a blind person. Okay? If you were to go and visit an ophthalmologist, and he said, You know, I've got this great idea. I think we need to make mud with our spittle and heal people of their blindness, they would run you out on a rail. Okay. Now some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, well, how can a man who is a sinner do such things? And there was a division among them. And so they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? And he said, he's a prophet. So the Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? Boy, these guys are just not satisfied with the answer, are they? They just are not warming up to this whole mud thing. His parents answered, Well, we know that he's our son, and we know that he was born blind, but oy vey, how he now sees, we do not know. Nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He's of age. He will speak for himself. Pop out. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. But the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he's of age. Ask him. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said, give glory to God. Gosh, this sounds a lot like the Spanish Inquisition, doesn't it? You know? No matter what you say, it's heresy at this point. 
No one expects a Spanish Inquisition. All right. Give glory to God. We know this man is a sinner. He answered, whether he is a sinner, I don't know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. Of course, they're going to warm up to this. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? Remember the mud? And he answered them, I've told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples? <laughs> this is where the hostile graveyard now comes into play. And they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. Profound statement here. There's many disciples of Moses. Okay? But as for this man, we don't even know where he comes from. And then the man answered, Why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, quoting them to themselves. Notice that. Quoting their doctrine back at them. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does His will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And they answered him, You were born in utter sin, and you would teach us. And they cast him out. Here's the best part of the story. Jesus heard that they cast him out. And having found him, Jesus seeks him out. This man had no idea what he was getting into when Jesus put the mud on his eyes. Having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I might believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have now seen him. You see him. And he is the one who is speaking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped Jesus. No one says Jesus is Lord except through the Holy Spirit. Do you think this man has faith in Christ? Where did this faith come from? The visible means. You could literally say this guy was given faith through mud. Because the healing that he received wasn't just the healing of his eyes. He was completely healed. Given faith to the point where he is being persecuted. And in his persecution, he confesses Christ. And Jesus comes to him. And he says, I believe. And he worshiped Jesus. That's an idea of visible means. Let me give you another one. I have just enough time for this. And then next week we'll have to continue this. We'll have to pick this up some more next week. You don't believe in baptismal regeneration? 
isn't exactly a baptism, but this is another example of visible word. Book of 2 Kings, chapter 5. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. Wow, an unbelieving pagan nation was given victory by whom? The Lord. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Aren't we all? Now the Syrians on none of their raids had one of I'm sorry, on one of the raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, Would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. Don't listen to little girls. They have all these strange ideas. Uh-huh. So Naaman went and told his uh, Naaman went and told his lord. Thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, "Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel." Who happens to be Ahab, husband of Jezebel. I mean, he and God are like this. This is Ahab. This is God. Okay. And the king of Syria said, Go, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothes. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman, my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. (laughs) Yeah, right. All right. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he's seeking a quarrel with me. He's thinking politically. You know, the king of Syria wants to start a war. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elijah sent a messenger to him saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh shall be restored and you shall be clean. Notice Elisha didn't even come out of the house. Just sent his messenger. Oh, you want to be clean? Okay, just go dip in seven times in the Jordan. And of course... Naaman's response, pretty much the same response we get to people who say baptism cannot possibly save. Naaman was angry and went away saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. That's a spiritual thing, right? You want me to go dip in the Jordan? It's just a muddy river. That's not going to do nothing, right? Are not Abana and Parfar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? And had he tried, he would not have been. So he turned and went away in a rage. I'm telling you, this idea of visible word when it comes to the sacraments is offensive. One of the reasons it's offensive to the decision theology people because if Christ really saves people through baptism, there's no decision on the part of the person being saved, especially if it's an infant. 
But not only that, we like the spiritual things. So his servants came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, Wash and be clean? So he went and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan. He's not had lepers are normally healed. According to the word of the man of God. That's the key. He dipped seven times in the Jordan because the man of God spoke the word of the Lord and said, this is how you're going to be healed. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child and he was clean. You want to know how clean he was? When he went into those waters, he was a pagan. He returned to the man of God and all his company, and he came and stood before them, and he said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. This sounds a lot like what we saw with the blind man. Jesus is Lord, and he worshipped him. Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. So accept now a present from your servant. But he said, As the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it out, and he refused. And then Naaman said, If not, please let there be given to your servant two mules loads of earth. For from now on, your servant will not offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any god but the Lord. How did this man get this faith? Where did it come from? We just spent time showing that you cannot make a decision for Christ. That God is the one who has to draw you. And He draws you through His Word. In this case, it's a visible Word attached to a promise that's connected with earthly stuff. Water. In this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant when my master goes to the house of Rimon to worship there, leaning on the arm, on my arm, and I bow myself in the house of Rimon. When I bow myself in the house of Rimon, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. He still had a civic duty as commander of the army to the king of Syria. And his heart wasn't in Rim, with Rimon, and he asked for literally a pardon ahead of time. And it was absolution before he do, did, did that, because it was part of his job. And Elisha says to him, go in peace. So when we talk about the means of grace, none of us really has this, a problem with the idea that faith comes through hearing the word. Okay? It's this visible word where a lot of people struggle. Okay, But let me give you a couple of verses. God's visible word, Romans 6.3. Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized in Christ were baptized into His death? We were therefore buried with Him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Acts 22.16. And now, what are you waiting for? Get up and be baptized and wash away your sins. Yeah, Colossians 2. Funny enough, we're studying the book of Colossians. In Him... You were circumcised with the circumcision, circumcision made without hands by putting off of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised Him from the dead. And you were dead in your trans, trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh and God made you alive together with Him having forgiven all of our trespasses by canceling the record of the debt that stood against us with its legal demands this he set aside, nailing it to 
the cross. And all of that is connected to your baptism. Don't tell me that God doesn't have a visible Word that works. So when we look at the means of grace, it is both the written Word and Word read, and is also the visible Word in which these promises are attached. When you take away the promises in the visible Word, you turn sacrament into our work rather than Christ. Uh-huh.